Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The reader will notice that school was thus coming to reflect a pattern I had already encountered in my home life. At home, the bad times had drawn my brother and me closer together. Here, where the times were always bad, the fear and hatred of Oldie had something the same effect upon us all. His school was in some ways very like Dr. Grimstone's school in vice versa. But unlike Dr. Grimstone's, it contained no informer. We stood foursquare against the common enemy. I suspect that this pattern, occurring twice and so early in my life, has unduly biased my whole outlook. To this day, the vision of the world which comes most naturally to me is one in which we too, or we few, and in a sense, we happy few, stand together against something stronger and larger. England's position in 1940 was to me no surprise. It was the sort of thing that I always expect. Hence, while friendship has been by far the chief source of my happiness, acquaintance or general society has always meant little to me, and I cannot quite understand why a man should wish to know more people than he can make real friends of. Hence, too, a very defective, perhaps culpably defective, interest in large impersonal movements, causes, and the like. The concern aroused in me by a battle, whether in story or in reality, is almost in an inverse ratio to the number of the combatants. In another way, too, Oldie's school presently repeated my home experience. Oldie's wife died, and in term time. He reacted to bereavement by becoming more violent than before, so much so that Wee Wee made a kind of apology for him to the boys. You will remember that I had already learned to fear and hate emotion. Here was a fresh reason to do so. But I have not yet mentioned the most important thing that befell me at Oldie's. There first I became an effective believer. As far as I know, the instrument was the church to which we were taken twice every Sunday. This was high, Anglo-Catholic. On the conscious level, I reacted strongly against its peculiarities. Was I not an Ulster Protestant? And were not these unfamiliar rituals an essential part of the hated English atmosphere? Unconsciously, I suspect, the candles and incense, the vestments and the hymns sung on our knees, may have had a considerable and opposite effect on me. But I do not think they were the important thing. What really mattered was that I here heard the doctrines of Christianity, as distinct from general uplift, taught by men who obviously believed them. As I had no skepticism, the effect was to bring to life what I would already have said that I believed. In this experience, there was a great deal of fear. I do not think there was more than was wholesome or even necessary, but if in my books I have spoken too much of hell, and if critics want a historical explanation of the fact, they must seek it not in the supposed Puritanism of my Ulster childhood, but in the Anglo-Catholicism of the church at Belzen. I feared for my soul especially on certain blazing moonlit nights in that curtainless dormitory. How the sound of the other boys breathing in their sleep comes back. The effect, so far as I can judge, was entirely good. I began seriously to pray, and to read my Bible, and to attempt to obey my conscience. Religion was among the subjects which we often discussed. Discussed, if my memory serves me, in an entirely healthy 
and profitable way, with great gravity and without hysteria, and without the shamefacedness of older boys. How I went back from this beginning, you shall hear later. Intellectually, the time I spent at Oldies was almost entirely wasted. If the school had not died, and if I had been left there two years more, it would probably have sealed my fate as a scholar for good. Geometry and some pages in West's English grammar, but even those I think I found for myself, are the only items on the credit side. For the rest, all that rises out of the sea of arithmetic is a jungle of dates, battles, exports, imports, and the like, forgotten as soon as learned and perfectly useless had they been remembered. There was also a great decline in my imaginative life. For many years joy, as I have defined it, was not only absent, but forgotten. My reading was now mainly rubbish, but as there was no library at the school, we must not make Oldie responsible for that. I read twaddling school stories in The Captain. The pleasure here was, in the proper sense, mere wish-fulfillment and fantasy. One enjoyed vicariously the triumphs of the hero. When the boy passes from nursery literature to school stories, he is going down, not up. Peter Rabbit pleases a disinterested imagination, for the child does not want to be a rabbit, though he may like pretending to be a rabbit as he may later like acting Hamlet. But the story of the unpromising boy who became captain of the first eleven exists precisely to feed his real ambitions. I also developed a great taste for all the fiction I could get about the ancient world. Quo Vadis, Darkness and Dawn, The Gladiators, Ben-Hur, it might be expected that this arose out of my new concern for my religion, but I think not. Early Christians came into many of these stories, but they were not what I was after. I simply wanted sandals, temples, togas, slaves, emperors, galleys, amphitheaters. The attraction, as I now see, was erotic, an erotic in rather a morbid way. And they were mostly, as literature, rather bad books. What has worn better and what I took to at the same time is the work of Ryder Haggard, and also the scientifiction of H.G. Wells. The idea of other planets exercised upon me then a peculiar, heady attraction, which was quite different from any other of my literary interests. Most emphatically, it was not the romantic spell of Das Fern. Joy, in my technical sense, never darted from Mars or the Moon. This was something coarser and stronger, the interest, when the fit was upon me, was ravenous, like a lust. This particular coarse strength I have come to accept as a mark that the interest which has it is psychological, not spiritual. Behind such a fierce tang there lurks, I suspect, a psychoanalytical explanation. I may perhaps add that my own planetary romances have not been so much the gratification of that fierce curiosity as its exorcism. The exorcism worked by reconciling it with, or subjecting it to, the other, the more elusive and genuinely imaginative impulse. That the ordinary interest in science fiction is an affair for psychoanalysts is borne out by the fact that all who like it, like it thus ravenously, and equally by the fact that those who do not are often nauseated by it. The repulsion of the one sort has the same coarse strength as the fascinated interest of the other, and is equally a telltale. So much for oldies.
but the year was not all term. Life at a vile boarding school is, in this way, a good preparation for the Christian life, that it teaches one to five by hope, even, in a sense, by faith. For at the beginning of each term, home and the holidays are so far off that it is as hard to realize them as to realize heaven. They have the same pitiful unreality when confronted with immediate horrors. Tomorrow's geometry blots out the distant end of term, as tomorrow's operation may blot out the hope of paradise. And yet, term after term, the unbelievable happened. Fantastical and astronomical figures like this time six weeks shrank into practicable figures like this time next week, and then this time tomorrow and the almost supernatural bliss of the last day punctually appeared. It was a delight that almost demanded to be stayed with flagons and comforted with apples, a delight that tingled down the spine and troubled the belly and at moments went near to stopping the breath. Of course, this had a terrible and equally relevant reverse side. In the first week of the holidays, we might acknowledge that term would come again. As a young man in peacetime, in full health, acknowledges that he will one day die. But like him, we could not even by the grimmest memento mori be brought to realize it. And there, too, each time, the unbelievable happened. The grinning skull finally peered through all disguises. The last hour, held at bay by every device our will and imaginations knew, came in the end. And once more it was the bowler hat, the Eton collar, the knickerbockers, and, clop, 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 the evening drive to the quay. In all seriousness, I think that the life of faith is easier to me because of these memories. To think in sunny and confident times that I shall die and rot, or to think that one day all this universe will slip away and become memory, as Oldie slipped away into memory three times a year, and with him the canes and the disgusting food, the stinking sanitation and the cold beds. This is easier to us if we have seen just that sort of thing happening before. We have learned not to take present things at their face value. In attempting to give an account of our home life at this time, I am troubled by doubts about chronology. School affairs can, to some extent, be dated by surviving records, but the slow, continuous unfolding of family life escapes them. Our slight alienation from our father imperceptibly increased. In part, no one was to blame. In a very great part, we were to blame. A temperamental widower still prostrated by the loss of his wife must be a very good and wise man indeed if he makes no mistakes in bringing up two noisy and mischievous schoolboys who reserve their confidence wholly for each other. And my father's good qualities, as well as his weaknesses, incapacitated him for the task. He was far too manly and generous to strike a child for the gratification of his anger. And he was too impulsive ever to punish a child in cold blood and on principle. He therefore relied wholly on his tongue as the instrument of domestic discipline. And here, that fatal bent towards dramatization and rhetoric, I speak of it the more freely since I inherit it, produced a pathetic, 
yet comic result. When he opened his mouth to reprove us, he no doubt intended a short, well-chosen appeal to our common sense and conscience. But alas, he had been a public speaker long before he became a father. He had for many years been a public prosecutor. Words came to him and intoxicated him as they came. What actually happened was that a small boy who had walked on damp grass in his slippers or left a bathroom in a pickle found himself attacked with something like Cicero on Catiline or Burke on Warren Hastings. Simile piled on simile, rhetorical question on rhetorical question, the flash of an orator's eye and the thundercloud of an orator's brow, the gestures, the cadences, and the pauses. The pauses might be the chief danger. One was so long that my brother, quite innocently, supposing the denunciation to have ended, humbly took up his book and resumed his reading. A gesture which my father, who had, after all, only made a rhetorical miscalculation of about a second and a half, not unnaturally took for, quote, cool, premeditated insolence. The ludicrous disproportion between such harangues and their occasions put me in mind of the advocate in Marshall, who thunders about all the villains of Roman history, while meantime, lis est de tribus capellus. This case, I beg the court to note, concerns a trespass by a goat. My poor father, while he spoke, forgot not only the offense, but the capacities of his audience. All the resources of his immense vocabulary were poured forth. I can still remember such words as abominable, sophisticated, and surreptitious. You will not get the full flavor unless you know an angry Irishman's energy in explosive consonants and the rich growl of his R's. A worse treatment could hardly have been applied. Up to a certain age, these invectives filled me with boundless terror and dismay. From the wilderness of the adjectives and the welter of the unintelligible emerged ideas which I thought I understood only too well. As I heard with implicit and literal belief that our father's ruin was approaching, that we should all soon beg our bread in the streets, that he would shut up the house and keep us at school all the year round, that we should be sent to the colonies and there end in misery the career of crime on which we had, it seemed, already embarked. All security seemed to be taken from me. There was no solid ground beneath my feet. It is significant that at this time, if I woke in the night and did not immediately hear my brother's breathing from the neighboring bed, I often suspected that my father and he had secretly risen while I slept and gone off to America, that I was finally abandoned. Such was the effect of my father's rhetoric up to a certain age. Then, quite suddenly, it became ridiculous. I can even remember the moment of the change and the story well illustrates both the justice of my father's anger and the unhappy way in which he expressed it. One day my brother decided it would be a good thing to make a tent. Accordingly, we procured a dust sheet from one of the attics. The next step was to find the uprights. The stepladder in the wash house suggested itself. For a boy with a hatchet, it was the work of a moment to reduce this to a number of disconnected poles. Four of these were then planted in the earth and the sheet draped over them. 
To make sure that the whole structure was really reliable, my brother then tried sitting on the top of it. We remembered to put away the ragged remains of the sheet, but quite forgot about the uprights. That evening, when my father had come home from work and dined, he went out for a stroll in the garden, accompanied by us. The sight of four slender wooden posts rising from the grass moved in him a pardonable curiosity. Interrogation followed. On this occasion, we told the truth. Then the lightnings flashed and the thunder roared, and all would have gone now as it had gone on a dozen previous occasions, but for the climax. Quote, Instead of which I find you have cut up the stepladder, and what for, forsooth? To make a thing like an abortive Punch and Judy show. End quote. At that moment, we both hid our faces. Not, alas, to cry. As will be seen from this anecdote, one dominant factor in our life at home was the daily absence of our father from about nine in the morning till six at night. For the rest of the day, we had the house to ourselves, except for the cook and housemaid, with whom we were sometimes at war and sometimes in alliance. Everything invited us to develop a life that had no connection with our father. The most important of our activities was the endless drama of Animal Land and India, and this, of itself, isolated us from him. But I must not leave the reader under the impression that all the happy hours of the holidays occurred during our father's absence. His temperament was mercurial. His spirits rose as easily as they fell, and his forgiveness was as thoroughgoing as his displeasure. He was often the most jovial and companionable of parents. He could play the fool as well as any of us, and had no regard for his own dignity. Conned no state. I could not, of course, at that age, see what good company, by adult standards, he was. His humor being of the sort that requires at least some knowledge of life for its full appreciation. I merely basked in it, as in fine weather. And all the time there was the sensuous delight of being at home, the delight of luxury, civilization, as we called it. I spoke just now of vice versa. Its popularity was surely due to something more than farce. It is the only truthful school story in existence. The machinery of the Garuda stone really serves to bring out in their true colors, which would otherwise seem exaggerated, the sensations which every boy had on passing from the warmth and softness and dignity of his home life to the privations, the raw and sordid ugliness of school. I say had, not has, for perhaps homes have gone down in the world and schools gone up since then. It will be asked whether we had no friends, no neighbors, no relatives. We had. To one family in particular, our debt is so great that it had better be left, with some other matters, to the next chapter. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, 
we come round right. <laughs>